the book of Acts chapter 1. We finished John on Wednesday night. And you know what's cool about this? Is as we've gone through the scriptures from book to book over the last several years, it's rare that we slide from one book right into the other. Now we did that going from Genesis to Exodus, picking up close to where Genesis left off with the children of Israel and going on with the story. But oftentimes, even though we finish one book and go to the next in, in our Bibles, the chronology isn't exactly correct. You know, you don't go right into the next thing. And especially when we've gone through the Gospels. Because if you've been here a while, you know, we've covered Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John now. We covered Matthew after we had finished, I believe, First and Second Kings. And we jumped ahead and we did Matthew. And then we went back to the Hebrew Scriptures for a while. And then we jumped ahead and did Mark and back to the Hebrew Scriptures. And then we jumped ahead and did Luke. And then we did the Minor Prophets and finally came finishing the Hebrew Scriptures into the New Testament beginning with John. And every time we finish a book, I I feel a little sad. I I miss it. And I don't know that I want to go on until the very first teaching of the next book, and then I'm, I'm good to go. But on this one, we pick up right where we left off. Though the author of the book of Acts is not John, the story is picked up right in that same time frame. Jesus in His resurrected state Prior to His ascension, we learn again about the ascension in Acts chapter 1, but we are right where we left off in John, heading on into Acts, and this, boy, it starts to get really exciting. And I hope you're ready for this, I'm ready for this. Let's open up our Bibles again. Acts chapter 1, if you want to keep a finger there, we're going to actually start in Luke chapter 1. So Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, O most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things which you have been taught. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. After having written out the evidence, the eyewitness account of the gospel, Luke now continues. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up to heaven after He had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. To these He also presented Himself alive after His suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over forty days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, He said... You heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. 
When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so it began. Father, we are so excited to study now the book of Acts. Excited, Lord, because we begin to realize, hey, this is our story. This is what we're involved with. This is what we're doing. We are caught up in this thing. And Lord, I think sometimes that we forget that. We slide into life, days and weeks and months and years, and and centuries go by, and we forget that this is our story. The Gospels, Lord Jesus, our story of redemption, our, our salvation by Your grace. But, but the book of Acts, our story begins here. The story of the church. And, and Father, I pray that You will teach us through these things how to be the church. In the story of the church in the early days, show us how to be the church in the last days. For I don't believe over 2,000 years that you would want us to change anything. Teach us, Father, by your Holy Spirit. We bow the knee to you and we pray. Instruct us in your ways, O Lord. Fill us with your Spirit. And give us the strength to accomplish what you have set before us until Jesus comes. In Jesus' name, Amen. All the world's a stage. So, says Jacques, the world-weary traveler in Shakespeare's As You Like It, Act 2, Scene 7. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. Then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like a snail, unwilling to school. And then the character goes on to describe the lover, that young man who comes into the place of passion, and the soldier, the the growing man ready to fight, and the justice, the wise man meeting out justice and making decisions over his family, and then the pantaloon. And finally, the second childishness of mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. So writes Shakespeare. And I was thinking that if the world truly is a stage, then we are on the verge of the final act. That the curtain is closing on the current act or age. The age in which we live is all but over. But something happened on the world stage that changed the drama of history forever. And nothing like it had ever happened before. And I'm talking about the church. With the birth of the church, everything changed. Now I I realize, some might say, oh, so you're saying your religion 
is the one, is the right one. All religions say that. All religions think like that. And I would say to you, if that's you this morning, just stay with me. And you'll see that this is far more than a religion that we're talking about. Now, the Bridge Christian Fellowship is a relatively younger sibling in the older family of the church. We're Shakespeare's schoolboy, kind of. I mean, we're not whining, and we're not creeping like a snail to be here this morning. You all are here on time, but you do have shining faces. Many of you brought your satchels, right, with your 66 books to study and to learn and to know. But my point is that we are still a very young fellowship. Jake made this comment the other day, and it kind of stopped me in my tracks. I thought, you know, he's right. He said, we're still a very young fellowship. Now, we're not mewling and puking in our nurses' arms. The barn, the hay bales, the outhouses are a memory. But we're still young in the grand scheme of the church. Comparatively, we're 11 of the last 2,000 years. So as a fellowship, yeah, we are young. Isn't it great to be a kid in the lap of Jesus at the beginning of the final act? That we get to be a part of this, of what He's doing, of what's going on. And as His schoolboys, schoolgirls in the lap of Jesus, our textbook is not bylaws and creeds and encyclicals. No, we've just got the one book in our backpacks with... Again, 66 volumes. And our teacher is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. Same as it always has been with the church. He has always been the teacher, the leader. Sure, I understand, man gets in the way. Some of you have been hurt by church. Many people have stories about bad behavior in church. I get that. The children scuffle on the playground. Fights break out. And some theologians need to go sit in the corner with a dunce cap on. But with the book of Acts, what we get to do is go back to the beginning. To start over, as it were. To read, to study, and to grow as a healthy church. We can see what it looked like, what they struggled with, how they handled things. How the Spirit moved and was at work among His people. And we can emulate that. And I believe we should. And kids, be encouraged. The old girl is still remarkably healthy. The church is still growing faster. You won't hear this in the news. It's still the fastest growing faith on the planet. It's still moving. Lives are still being radically changed by the church faster than any other organization, any other organism in the history of the world, and it still goes on. It goes on. And this morning, I just want to do two things as we consider the church and we open up the pages of the book of Acts. I want to introduce the book to you, give you a few things to think about, a little bit of background, and then I want to explain why the church is, why the church must be different than any other organization that's ever existed. So first, a little introduction for you. Number one, if you want to jot these things down, I'll give you three or four things to note about the book of Acts, background information about the book. Number one, understand that the book of Acts is an overtly evangelical book. An overtly evangelical book. It is the gospel lived out. 
It is a picture of a people who can't shut up about Jesus. A picture of a people who are constantly inviting friends and family and loved ones into this thing called the church. And being the gospel lived out, it's no surprise then that it begins and it ends with the person of Jesus Christ Himself. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. He starts with Jesus. Luke says, this starts with what he began in my first volume. And now we're going to see how this continues on, beginning with Jesus and ending with Jesus. Acts 28, verse 31, the final verse of the book, Paul is seen preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. With all openness, unhindered. So like bookends, we begin and end this church study in the book of Acts with Jesus Himself. Take Jesus out and you have no story. Remove Jesus and we are wasting our time. Take away the founder, you have no following. Now this volume is the companion volume of the Gospel of Luke, as we've said. You could call it Luke Part Deux. If you would like to, you could do that. And Dr. Luke is still compiling evidence, still under the tutelage of the Spirit of Christ Himself, to one named Theophilus. When we studied Luke, we talked about that name, Theophilus, friend of God, God's friend, is what the name means in the Greek. In Luke chapter 1, verse 3, he calls him most excellent Theophilus, most excellent friend of God, and it's a title, in fact, it may indicate a Roman official. That if in fact this Theophilus is a person, he may very well be a Gentile believer in the the government of Rome. Most excellent Theophilus. And it may be an actual name of an actual person that Luke is writing to. It could also be a secure pseudonym for this official, for this friend of God, Theophilus, so that he won't get in trouble, but but a name chosen by Luke so that he can get this to him, and if it's found, well, no, that's not mine, or whatever. But another possibility, and it's the one that I lean toward, is that Dr. Luke is compiling a legal defense brief. That the book of Acts is his defense for Paul's trial before Caesar Nero, which Paul is awaiting at the end of the book. That's my thinking on it. Don't know for sure. But it is a phenomenal defense of the early church. The first account I composed, O Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Verse 2, Until the day when He was taken up to heaven, after He had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. Acts is a bridge document. Oh, not like the British Christian Fellowship. It's a document that literally bridges one place to the other. It gets us from the ascension of Christ to the birth of the church. And through the first 30 years or so of the church. Note that in the Greek, he says, all that Jesus began to do and teach there in the first verse. All that Jesus began to do and teach is in the present infinitive active in the language, meaning it's continuous ongoing action. All that He began to do and teach and, and, and is continuing to be done and taught is the implication there. It's an action that did not end with the ascension of Jesus. No, see, Jesus is still doing and He is still teaching. 
He is still at work. The Gospel is still rolling and the Spirit of Christ is as active today as He was when He was walking on the face of the earth. In fact, I would say more active because He's not limited to Galilee and Judea. Jesus is ongoing in what He's doing and what He is teaching. This action that we're talking about did not end with the ascension of Christ, nor does it end with the conclusion of the book. Note this second thing, the book of Acts is an open-ended book. And I love that. It doesn't really end. It just kind of halts for a moment. Acts 28.31 again, Paul is preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And if this book was on the bookshelves of the local bookstore, you'd read that in and say, well, then what? I mean, it's like the empire strikes back. Don't leave me hanging. Where do we go from here? What happens from here? Why does it end this way? Because the story of Jesus is still in play. And the thing, and this maybe isn't that big an idea to you, it's a huge idea to me. We are still in the story. This is still playing out. Acts is not a history. It is now for you and for me, for the church. It started historically, but we are still doing what they were doing in the early days. We are still part of this thing. We're not looking back at some old ancient history of this old group and the things they did way back in the days of yore. No, we are part of it now. What is your part in the story? How are you going to be written in? How will you be remembered? What's your legacy? And I'm not talking about how will you be remembered among people on the earth. I'm talking about how will you be remembered by the Lord in the life that you're living. How will you be written in? You may hear that and go, oh man, if that's the deal, I don't have a story worth telling. Then write one. Yeah, but Rick, I'm in in my... 40s, like Don. By the way, Don, I have your birthday card right here. (laughs) Don just turned, what, 43, right? 43. (laughs) You might say, look, I'm toward the end of my life, which is the silliest thing a human being can say because we have no idea when the end is. You may be, you know, 27 years old, walk outside and get hit by a bus. I'm toward the end of my life I don't have many days left what are you going to write with the days you have left I see Ray in the back he's got a great book out Ray you're going to have to remind me of the title but it's the book about people in retirement going into missions what's the title never before never again never before never again ask Ray for a copy of the book he'll give it to you for free but There is an excise tax. Right. Anyway, Ray makes a great point in this book that he writes. Man, if you're in retirement and you have funds, you have resources, you have opportunity, go on a mission. Who in the world, who in their right mind would think that Martin Christine Landis would be heading to the Philippines? Not them. Yeah. <laughs> How are you going to be written into the story? What are you going to do about it? Well, I just don't have any time, resources. Then why don't you start talking to God about this? Father, what's my part in the story? Here in the last few days, what if there's three days left? What are you going to do in the next three? 
What if there's three years left? How are you going to be written into the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is a big story. It's a glorious story. And I guarantee you, when we get to heaven, we won't be studying the book of Acts ending in chapter 28. We will be studying and reading and talking about the book of Acts ending in chapter 3,472 or something like that. Because the story is ongoing. It is still being written. Now, the good doctor probably wrote the book that we have before us between 60 and 61 A.D. We place it there. And as early as 150 A.D., the title in extant manuscripts, that means existent manuscripts that we have today, the title was placed on it, the Acts of the Apostles. So we look back to 150, and that's what they were calling it, at least at that point. This book they called the Acts of the Apostles. Is that Luke's original title? Probably not. Why? Because it was either a testimonial or it was a court document. It wasn't like a book in the Bible that you would put a title to as we have today. But somewhere along the line, and not too far along the line, that name stuck. The Acts of the Apostles. Truth is, it really only focuses on two. It's not really the acts of the apostles so much as the actions that we see of two, Peter, the good fisherman who we know all too well, Peter whose life was restored to ministry in John 21, Peter who will take up much of the first part of the book, and another man named Paul, who if we were just reading through the Bible straight through and now we've arrived at the book of Acts, we would be meeting a man named Paul who we have never seen before. We haven't met him. Not even mentioned in the four Gospels. Shaul actually is his Hebrew name. Was his Hebrew name. We don't meet Paul until we see him as a coat checker. At the first martyrdom of a deacon named Stephen, Acts 7.58. When they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Shaul, Saul, who would eventually be renamed Paul. My point is this. Without the book of Acts, we'd have no idea how Saul became Paul. In fact, we would go from John's Gospel, which shows a reinstatement of Peter into ministry. We would read a few chapters, and all of a sudden, we would, we would, we would get a guy who we know nothing about. We'd go from John to Romans. We'd open up Romans chapter 1, start reading, and go, well, who's this guy? And why should we listen to him? What are his credentials? Luke gives us the credentials of the Apostle Paul. Luke helps us understand why we should listen to this guy at all who wrote a number of the epistles and letters in the New Testament. Without the book of Acts, we would not have confidence that Paul's our guy, that we should listen to him at all. By the way, I am personally and absolutely convinced that Paul is the twelfth apostle. Now we're going to hear in Acts chapter 2 about Peter's straw poll. They elected a guy named Matthias, a good guy, no doubt, but probably not Jesus' choice to fill the office vacated by Judas the betrayer. I think it was Paul. Why don't you think it was Matthias? Well, primarily because every other apostle was hand-selected by Jesus. And Matthias was selected by a straw poll. Literally, they 
drew straws to see who the guy would be. Now, does that mean Jesus couldn't have been in that? No, it doesn't. Does that mean Matthias wasn't a witness of Jesus in the early days that he didn't know him? No, it doesn't mean that. Does that mean Matthias couldn't be a good apostle? I mean, come on. Let's break for Matthias here. Hey, I'm just saying. Jesus called Paul. And we will see that story in the book of Acts. Well then, if if Paul's supposed to be the twelfth apostle... And this Acts of the Apostles, really the Acts of Peter and Paul, which it really isn't even that. But the Acts of Paul, well then, why don't we hear about him in the Gospels? Why didn't Jesus go get him when he got the other 11 guys? Why not go get Paul at that time? Well, the obvious reason is that Judas was necessary. But a second reason is I believe Paul was not ready. Paul was not ready. He couldn't have been called by Jesus because his heart wasn't in the place where that calling would have worked for him. Uh, Why don't you turn your Bibles over to Philippians chapter 3 for a moment. Philippians 3. Verse 2. Paul writing to the church of Philippi at this point. And Paul says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil. Oh, if only I had read that verse before we bought Reggie. Oh, the carpet I would have saved. (laughs) Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless, Paul says. That was me. That was the life he was living. But verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Talk about a major transformation in a man's life. To go from the go-to guy in Israel, a higher up, a passionate zealot of a guy to a simple follower of Jesus Christ, a life radically and alterably, inalterably changed. And it would take some time. And it typically does take a little time for God to get us to the place we need to be to receive and accept Jesus. So in the Gospels, Paul wasn't ready. Not until we get to Acts. Not until this point. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Only when Paul was really ready to give it all up would he be ready for the Gospel. So we're going to see why the two principal players in the book of Acts are Peter and Paul. One more thing about these two guys before we move on from them though. It's interesting to parallel the two in their ministries. Peter primarily the first part of Acts and then Paul primarily the second part of Acts. But if you look at what the two men did and compare them, it's fascinating how similar they are. And there's a reason for it. How are they similar? Well, first of all, both apostles heal a man who was lame from birth. Lame from the womb, literally. 
Peter in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Paul in Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. Same kind of a situation. A guy who was born lame was healed by Peter and was healed by Paul. Oh, by the way, and Jesus did that too. Second thing that's interesting, both apostles heal with a stunning, what I would call, transfer of power. Listen to this. Acts chapter 5, verse 15. They even carried their sick out onto the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. You want to talk about power? Your shadow falls on someone and they're healed? About Paul, we find out in Acts 19, verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out and Paul could have launched on a wonderful TV evangelist campaign. (laughs) But the point is, simply by association, whether by a shadow or by a napkin, People were getting healed. So we see that similarity in both Peter and Paul. We also see that in Jesus, don't we? That He healed simply by speaking the Word. That He healed simply by a woman touching the hem of His garment. So what we see in Peter, what we see in Paul, is simply an emulation of what Jesus already showed us, of who He is. Just Jesus at work in these men. Both apostles deal powerfully and effectively with sorcerers. Paul with Simon Magus and Peter with a guy named Bar-Jesus. And Jesus dealt with that as well. In fact, Luke points out that for every miracle worked through Peter, there's a comparable one worked through Paul. The only exception is at one point Peter raises another lame man, and that's mentioned. But in every other case, well, and and Paul shook off a viper, so that was different. But in every other case, there is this remarkable similarity between the two. Why? Because Luke, in the book of Acts, is establishing Paul's credentials as an apostle. You can read the book and say, oh, I see Peter doing this. Well, of course, he's an apostle called by Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of Christ. I get it. Here's Paul doing the same thing. And it's as if Luke is saying to you and saying to me, you can trust him. He is an apostle. Verified, credentialed by the Holy Spirit of the living God. And I'm just telling you what I saw Dr. Luke would write. Both apostles also raised the dead. Peter raises Tabitha. His Greek name is Dorcas. I would call her Tabitha in today's culture because Dorcas just wouldn't work. (laughs) Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 41. Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. Paul raises Eutychus in chapter 20, verses 9 through 12. You remember the story of Eutychus? One of my favorite stories in all the Bible because it verifies and validates my preaching ministry. (laughs) Paul's preaching late into the night. Eutychus is sitting in the window, falls asleep, and falls out of the window and dies. (laughs) Warning to all those who would fall asleep in my sermons. And so Paul races downstairs, throws himself on the body of Eutychus, and raises him back from the dead. Best part of the story, they go back upstairs and Paul continues preaching through the night. I love it. But both apostles raised from the dead. Well, so did Jesus. Of course... Only Jesus raised Himself. 
what? Raised himself? I thought God raised Jesus from the dead. Or, or the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Well, absolutely. But John chapter 2, verse 18, the Jews are arguing with Jesus as they were wont to do. And they said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? And John writes, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus said, I'll raise it up. And so Jesus not only raised the dead, Jesus raised himself from the dead by the power of God through the Spirit of the Lord, the Trinity working in unison there. Well, if all the world's a stage then this overtly evangelical, this this open-ended book, truly is the acts of the Spirit of Jesus through these different guys, through these different people. Working through many different players, named and unnamed, in the progress of the kingdom on the world stage. That's the third thing to note, that the book of Acts is an observably eschatological book. An observably eschatological book. What does that mean? (laughs) Eschatology is the study of the end times. The book of Acts assumes the end from the beginning. And the beginning from the end. Huh? The book of Acts opens and closes with an eye to the kingdom. Look at this. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Skip down and look at verse 6. When they had come together, they were asking Him, saying, Lord, is it at this time You are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now the biblical Hebrew understanding of this is spot on. It's just their timing that's off. Just because they asked the question doesn't mean that no, the Lord's not going to restore the kingdom. You guys are confused. That's done with. God is through with the Jew. Israel is over and done. We're moving on to a new thing now. No. They asked the question because a Hebrew would ask the question. Are you restoring the kingdom now? The kingdom that's been promised? It's absolutely embedded in the Jewish worldview. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. God speaking to David through Natan the prophet. He says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish His kingdom, and He shall build a house for My name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. By the way, that's how we know that it's not Solomon that Nathan the prophet was talking about when he told David, I'm going to establish your kingdom. Because Isaiah comes along and says, no, no, this is a future thing. And Isaiah prophesied in the days of Hezekiah. Daniel chapter 7 verse 27, the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. Micah the prophet, chapter 4 verse 8, as for you, speaking to Israel, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. You cannot be Jewish, you cannot study the Hebrew Scriptures and not know that God promised a kingdom eternal. A kingdom forever. 
So, when the apostles come along and they say, Lord, is it now? Is it at this time You are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They were asking the right question just at the wrong time. Jesus, in His public ministry, proclaimed and declared the kingdom constantly. Matthew 4.17, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Matthew 6.10, He prays, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.33, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. John 18.37, Jesus answered Pilate, You say that I am a king? For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. All of that to say, for those who think the church supplanted Israel, think again. That is absolutely unbiblical. And there is a lot, a large percentage of church people who think just that. That the church replaced Israel. Luke's inclusion of this question in chapter 1 is not only historically accurate from a Jewish perspective, but what it does, the reason I believe it's included, not only that it, because it happened, but the question is asked and, and concluded or included because it engages the church. Listen, it engages the church in preparation for the fulfillment of God's kingdom, His promises to Israel. That this is part of what we're doing. That we are engaged in the fulfillment of that. Not in us. Don't get me wrong. Not in the church. But we are preparing the way for the King. And we are calling out that His kingdom will come, is coming, is imminent. Is it at this time, Lord? Now see, that's a question you and I might be asking. Is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And I believe... As we ask that question right now this morning, that the Lord would say, just about. Any minute now. What does Jesus say? He doesn't respond, you guys don't get it. You don't get it. Restoring the kingdom. That's over. I'm through with the Jew. That's ancient history. No, what Jesus says, listen to it, verse 7. It is not for you to know the times or epochs, that word epochs is ages, which the Father has fixed by His own authority. In other words, I'm not going to tell you that right now, that's not your business. But He already told us something, what's that? That the Father had fixed the kingdom age by His own authority. That age is fixed. That age is on schedule. That age is coming. With certainty. The church then is simply a liaison through whom Jesus is preparing this age for the next age, this final age for the coming kingdom age. And that's what I meant earlier when I said the curtain's closing on this act. The next act is the kingdom. The kingdom come. This schoolboy is part of something enormous. Something vast, something huge. We have got to, we can't wrap our arms around it, but we've got to try. Brothers and sisters, we need to be excited about what we are part of. And recognize we're caught up in this. And do our part in it. In Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas come to Thessalonica on the second missionary journey of Paul. 
And when they're there, they create quite a stir. The response is big. Lots of people come into faith in Jesus there in Thessalonica. But some of the Jews were very angry. They bust in union protesters. They arrested several believers. They dragged them before the city rulers. And this is what they said. Acts chapter 17 verse 6. These have turned the world upside down. And they had. They absolutely had. And had I been there in that moment when those... Jewish leaders shouted out, they've turned the world upside down. I'd say, you ain't seen nothing yet. We're just getting started. Now there's so much more I could introduce. I'm going to leave that, I think, for Wednesday night because it's best that we just dive in and start going through it. It will introduce itself, the book will, as Luke teaches. And we're going to get to it on Wednesday. But I need to address something this morning here in these first few verses. I want you to think again about what I said when we started. I said, and I quote, Something happened on the world stage that changed the drama of history forever. Nothing like it had ever happened before. And again, some might argue, how arrogant of you. You just think of all the world's religions that your belief system is the right one. How can you think that? Because what happened is radically greater than the development of a belief system. The church was not founded like the founding of America. A bunch of guys got together and started writing documents. Hey, the documents of this country that the founders wrote are amazing. And that's a system by which America was formed and founded, and, and we're, but we're not doing very well with that. But that's another... That's a political message. I'll save that for one-on-one. We're not doing well with that. The church was not founded on a belief system. Do you realize that the documents of Scripture that we have, the New Testament at least, wasn't even written. It was written about what happened. It wasn't written first and then what happened came out of it. So it's not a belief system we're talking about that. It's more than an idea that we're talking about. Much more than a a movement or a paradigm or or a program. It's more than a cause, a crusade, a campaign. That is not the church. The church is an entirely new breed of people who are born into the world. This is a completely different thing altogether. In fact, verse 4 Gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which He said, You have heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now. What had the Father promised? What was it that He said that that Jesus is referencing here? Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Let me just read it to you. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, on your sons and your daughters, and they will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And it has never happened before. What Joel prophesied was mind-blowing because even with Israel, God had never done that. Remember what happened in John chapter 20, verse 22? We just read about it last week. Jesus breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
And now, listen, now because His Spirit was in them, He's telling them, I want you to gather. I want you to wait in Jerusalem because you are about to have access. My Spirit's there. You are about to have access to a power that will turn the world upside down. You don't have access to that power unless His Spirit is dwelling within you. And so Jesus shows us. He breathes. He he indwells them. He gives them His Spirit. And then, not many days later, on the day of Pentecost, as we'll see in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is poured out upon them. They receive a power, a new kind of power. And it never happened before. And I keep saying that. Because the Lord gave His Spirit, yes, to individuals. Certain kings would receive the Spirit of the Lord. Saul, David, I think Hezekiah, probably Josiah. The Spirit of the Lord certainly came on many individual prophets, or even a group of prophets at one time. time. But not the whole of Israel, and certainly not all people, as is talked about here. Moses, Samuel, Elijah, they would have the power of the Spirit. Elisha had a double portion of the power that Elijah had. But now, now he's talking about the birth of a whole different, a whole new breed of people who are born again by the Spirit of the living God. John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. How is that possible? A different kind of people were about to be born. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, John chapter 3, verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Now stop right there. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that is every creed and every religion and every doctrine and every document and every movement in the history of man was born of flesh. But one, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, Jesus says, you must be born. Again, look at verse 8. You will receive power. That Greek word dunamis. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. He doesn't say you're going to have power to witness. He says you'll receive power and you will be my witnesses. Do you get the difference? It's not that you get this magical Tinkerbell power and you'll be able to hop all over the place and, 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 and witness when that power's on you. It means you're going to receive the power and literally you are just going to become witnesses. You will be witnesses. You can't help but witness because the power is in you and upon you and alongside you. You must witness. And it is an absolute cop-out for a church person to say, I'm just not an evangelist. No, you are. Unless you don't have the Spirit of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're right. You're not a witness. But if you have the Holy Spirit of the living God indwelling you, access to the power that He gives you, you will be a witness. What you do will be a factor of who you are. Who you become in Jesus when you are born again. 
And I get excited about this and passionate about it because, my friends, in these last days, I believe it is time for the church to regain our footing. To stand once again on the foundation of Christ. To be the spotless bride. To stop compromising and caving in. To stand with the power that we've been given. It is time we realized our calling by Jesus Christ. Time we move in our new nature. By the power of the Holy Spirit promised to all of us. And part of the problem is, in our culture, in our age, is for a long time now, the church has relied on marketing methods, and media, and strategies, things that mimic the very world that Jesus has called us to transform. Not to be transformed by the world, but to transform the world. I look at the church in certain settings, certain circumstances, And I ask the question, where is the Holy Spirit in all this? Where is the Holy Spirit in this decision by this board of elders? Where is the Spirit in that? Where is the Spirit in all the tech and media that we employ in the church? Where is the Spirit in the comfort of a sanctuary that we built? The Spirit is in you. And the Spirit is in me. But in so many churches, and it breaks my heart, even among more charismatic churches, it seems to be more about emotionalism than evangelism. It seems more about us than anything else. It's like about giddiness instead of the gospel. We have got to regain our footing. And if you heard nothing else this morning, hear this. If you are not inspired by the Spirit of the living God, you will be inspired by another spirit. I've been really chewing on this one. Actors in Shakespeare's day called them muses. You, You know what I'm talking about. A muse, an inspiration. Elizabeth Gilbert... I don't know how many of you ladies have read her book written back in 2006, Eat, Pray, Love. I hope none of you, if you have, well, whatever. Don't raise your hand. I hope none of you guys wrote it because it's it's a book by a chick and what's wrong with you? I'm sorry. (laughs) Delete that at uh, 50 minutes. Okay, just wait. Elizabeth Gilbert came out, she wrote this this runaway bestseller book in 2006, Eat, Pray, Love. Oprah loved it, which tells you something right there. It's a book that she wrote after a painful divorce and after spending some time traveling the world in search of peace. And so she wrote, Eat, Pray, Love. Three years later, in a 2009 lecture that she gave at the Tech and Entertainment and Design uh, Conference, the TED Conference, you can actually watch this on YouTube, Elizabeth Gilbert talked about the creative process and where her ideas of creativity come from. And she described her words, quote, a divine disembodied creative spirit. She said the Romans called called it a genius. And she was describing how we've taken the concept of genius and we've said, oh, that guy's a genius. But the Romans didn't see it that way. The Romans saw a genius as being outside of the person, as being the inspiration of the person. So if what the person did was good, well, they could credit the genius. If they did something bad, well, they could blame the genius. 
But the genius was outside the person. Interestingly, the Greeks have a name for that as well. Daemons. From where we get our word demons. Her newest release, Elizabeth Gilbert's, is coming out in September of this year. It's called Big Magic. Creative Living Beyond Fear. And the whole idea, the whole concept is going outside of myself to find inspiration for creativity, for imagination, for all kinds of things, but, but finding my muse, finding, finding my genius, finding my daemon. And as I talked to my son about this, I said, you know that any spirit other than the Spirit of God that would inspire a person is a daemon. Is a demon. You do not receive inspiration from a spirit that is not the spirit of the Lord. We even see the angels in Revelation saying, Don't bow down to me. I'm just a fellow servant of yours. You worship God. You focus on Jesus. You cannot drink, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 10.21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and at the table of demons. And yet our world does. Our world plays religion while going to the table of demons. Does the church? Are we seeking to find our inspiration in these last days from some author? Some speaker? Someone else? Oh, well, but, but she, she is so learned. Oh, yeah, but, but he, he's got such a great track record. And I'm going to tell you honestly, I, I so appreciate the, the ladies and the gentlemen who have worked really hard on our church library. I really do. And, and please, for those of you who are involved in that and have been involved in that, I appreciate you so much. But it worries me. And I walk out there and I look at the library from time to time and I wonder if we shouldn't clear all the books off and just have one book sitting there. From whom will we get our direction, and our inspiration. Seventy times in the book of Acts, seventy times you're going to hear the word spirit. Numa. Fifty-nine of those seventy times it is referring to the Holy Spirit. Twice it's a reference to Paul's own spirit. Paul thought or said in his spirit. And nine times... It refers to evil or unclean spirits. Referred to in the book of Acts. And my question to you is from whom will you get your direction and your inspiration? You see, we're not different because somebody had a bright idea. The church is not different than all other religions, if you even can call it that, all other faith organizations in the world. We're not different because we stumbled upon some new idea or some new lifestyle. What's different about the church is that it is made up of a people who now have the Spirit of God. We are a new breed. We are a different people. And not only do we have the Spirit, but we have access to His power. Again, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth, even to Whidbey Island. We are different. Inside and out, intrinsically, innately different. And because of this difference, in 30 years... 
in just 30 years, 11 fishermen and a Pharisee and a group about the third the size of this current schoolboy, a third the size of our fellowship in 30 years, turned the entire known world upside down. Why? Because of an idea? No. Because of the Spirit of the living God. The Spirit of Christ. These are the acts of the Spirit of Christ. And without the Spirit of Christ, you know what? The book could rightly be called the Acts of the Apostles, but it wouldn't matter. Nobody would read it. If the Spirit hadn't been part of this thing, we would care less. In fact, we wouldn't even be meeting here this morning. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Father, I pray that You will pour out Your Spirit and power on the Bridge Fellowship like never before. That we who have the indwelling presence of the Spirit of Christ within us would begin to tap into and to access that very power that You promised. A power, Lord, that that will not glorify us, but will bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus. A power that will not make us think more highly of ourselves, but will humble us before the mightiness of our God. A power, Lord, that we desperately need if we are to be written into the story here in these last days. And I ask You, in the name of Jesus, to pour out on us that we might carry on the Gospel work to which You've called us. In Jesus' name, Amen.